This episode of The Real is brought to you by Succession on HBO. Critics hailed the first season of Succession as the best show on television, irresistible entertainment, and a must-watch show. Five Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Drama Series. Visit hbo.com FYC for more on Succession. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson, and we're here today with Craig Mazin, writer, creator, executive producer of the series Chernobyl. Craig, thanks for making time for us. Wonderful uh, to be here. And now we're having this conversation as the show has been nominated for 19 Emmy Awards, including Best Limited Series. You yourself have been recognized for Best Writing. And how does that feel? How do you feel about the response to the show? Well, it's a bit overwhelming. I mean, you obviously want the show to be received well, although I must admit that my primary interest is always that people watch it. And at least initially, the way we kind of understood it was, that's nice, but a show like this airing on a Monday night, which isn't really a customary night for programming for HBO, and the subject matter being what it is, Let's go for those nominations. You know, don't worry so much about people watching it. And what's been so gratifying is that people have watched it. I mean, it's, I think we're over 12 million viewers now. So it's, it's the most watched miniseries on HBO since Band of Brothers, which is back in 2001, I think. That's amazing. Okay. But then you say you want to get some nominations. When you get 19 nominations, that also is a bit overwhelming too. And we're all, I'm personally incredibly grateful for all of the people that got nominations that did all the craft work on the show because they worked so hard and they were so good at what they did. So I'm really excited about going to that one, the creative arts show. So I'm, I'm going to root my people on. And now what was it that drew you to the story of Chernobyl in the first place? Well, initially it was a sense of a gap in my knowledge. I was reading about the new confinement structure that is now in place over Chernobyl. But when I was initially reading about it, I think in 2014, they were just constructing it. And while I was reading this, it occurred to me that even though I knew that Chernobyl had blown up, I didn't know why, which is really odd if you think about it, to not know why something like that happened. And so I just started reading. And the more I read, the more I was amazed by what I didn't know. And the circumstances of what happened at Chernobyl are kind of akin to this huge secret war that hadn't really been made part of our cultural discourse and our understanding of, of the history of our planet. And I just became fascinated. I think in part what's happened is that people have come to the show and been fascinated by the same things I was fascinated by. I want to take credit for it, but really it's the event that is so gripping and so remarkable and so unexpected in so many different ways. The series both begins and ends with this notion of lies versus the truth and even 
in some ways, the narratives and forms of storytelling we use to get ourselves through our lives. How did you come to realize that that was, for you, like a key part of Chernobyl? Well, as a writer, you're always looking for something that feels like, as a philosophical point of view, it can organize all of this. And throughout my investigation of Chernobyl, what just kept coming up over and over and over again is that none of this happens without the lie. Not just a lie, but the lie, the culture of the lie, the repetition of lies, lies that lead to the creation of the circumstances that let it happen, lies following it. And it is only people who insist on adhering to the truth and confronting the truth, even at great personal cost. It's only they who solve the problem. And it's only they who really are the heroes. You'd like to think that after something like Chernobyl, a government and a culture would change permanently. But even though the government is no longer the Soviet Union, right now in the news, there was a nuclear explosion in Russia that they kept not only from the world for a week, but also apparently kept from the people living nearby. And they're still not telling people exactly what the numbers are. They're still not being transparent. It's remarkable how similar it is to the way it was. We are, it's not just them, over here in our country, our politicians seem addicted to narrative and to telling you some beautifully organized version of what you want to hear. And everything must go, everything must immediately go into a story. Jeffrey Epstein hangs himself in a cell and the narratives begin literally seconds later. It's remarkable. Considering the fact that some of the response to the show has been people feeling that it's timely, that it's talking to these issues of what we want from our government, how they talk to us, how we sort of like respond back. You've been working on this show for many years now. Was that a question you asked yourself even when you were starting was, what does this have to say now? Of course. And look, I was creating the, the structure, you know, we call it a Bible, a show Bible. So the basic concept of the show and the episodes and how they would lay out and what would be inside of them, that was all being done during the presidential campaign that was going on in 2016. And the scripts themselves were written following that election. And it became fairly clear to me that what we used to think of as a foreign problem, I mean, we used to mock the Soviets for their ham-fisted propaganda and their silly slogans and the way that they're, they would dub their media truth when in fact it was lies. Well, we're not immune to that at all. At all. In fact, we are just as susceptible to it as they are. We might even be more susceptible to it because at least culturally, Russians understood that that's what they were being fed. And so they could question it. We here seem to think that we're still being told the truth by, I don't know, Fox News or something. But we're not. Or at least the viewers of it do. So I became very aware that there were clear parallels between the way human beings on that side of the world handle difficult truths and human beings on this side of the world handle difficult truths. Enough time has gone by where we don't have to think of Soviet citizens as somehow foreign from us or the other. They're not. And we are, in fact, engaging in the same kind of hyperbolic narrativization of truth that they turned into an art. And not surprisingly, they continue to use it against us in a weaponized fashion. In the four or five years that you've been working on this, have your feelings toward that question of why tell this story now, have they changed? No, although it is odd that the world keeps reinforcing it. I mean, I thought I had enough of a reason, which was that we were living in an era where propaganda had evolved and I really mutated from what it was, which was a very kind of clunky government 
thing where we would drop pamphlets on, you know, over Japanese soldiers or something like this in World War II. And now it's a localized, individualized program using social media to recruit unwilling, useful idiots to spread the false message to the point where you can literally gin up a protest between two groups that didn't exist until you made them exist and they're both yelling at each other. It's brilliant. I thought that was enough. But the way it continues, and now also, very strangely, this succession of explosions, literal explosions in Russia that they continually, well, I won't say full-on lie, but they are obscuring and downplaying. It's a bit eerie. I'm not behind it, <laughs> but it, it does feel almost like it was rigged, doesn't it? I mean, you make a show about Chernobyl and then a, a month or two later, there's a nuclear explosion in Russia and they're talking about evacuating a town and they're downplaying the, the amount of radiation. Scientists have died. Huh. Weird. Yeah, weird. And now up to now in your career, you've been known for essentially writing studio comedies. You're involved in the Scary Movie franchise, the Hangover franchise. Chernobyl, obviously, very different from that. Did it take some effort for you to make that turn? Were there people who didn't want you to take on a project like Chernobyl? And, and what was it for you that made you want to tackle something that was so different from what you've been doing in the past? Well, it was certainly an effort for me in the sense that I needed to actively turn away from the grand wheel of employment and just say, I'm going to take a risk here, remove myself from the wheel, take myself out of that service industry and work on something that means something to me. I mean, I had confidence that I could do it, but part of managing your career in this business is knowing how fickle it is. And, you know, I have a family, I have obligations and, you know, so you don't make these decisions casually. If you are only responsible for yourself, I think it's a lot easier to be brave. But when you are responsible for other people, you have to be careful. So I had been careful and I arrived at a point where I thought I had, I could prudently do this. When it came to convincing other people to let me do something, I was, I'm a pragmatist to my very core. I never considered that they would ever come to me and say, hey, we have this serious thing. We hear that you're a good writer. <laughs> would you like to do this? It's not the way the world works. But here was something I had. And the nice thing about television is it's not like an enormous commitment to say, well, okay, well, here's a little bit of money to develop it and write a pilot script. I mean, that's as far as HBO is on the hook for. So it was up to me to then prove it. And that's, that's what I did. And now can you talk a bit about the way that you approached the story? And you can tell me if for you it's a matter of structure or something else. I'm thinking specifically simply of how you show the explosion mm. and the actual event. You sort of begin the story in the immediate aftermath of the explosion. We don't really see the events that, you know, leading up to it until fairly late in the story. How did you decide to approach things in that way? Well, it's a certain amount of it is just instinct, but I think part of it is a reaction to being bored. I mean, there's a lot of television and a lot of it follows various rules. I mean, there's an obvious way to do this story. And the obvious way to do it is the way that they do most disaster things. You start on the day of and you see people go to work and they're laughing and goofing around and then something goes wrong and then there's an explosion and no one knows why. And I just found that so terribly boring. <laughs> I just, well, partly, you know, maybe because they come from movies and the thought of making people wait an hour to see the thing explode when the show is called Chernobyl made no sense to me. But it was challenged though to figure out how to show it in a way that also felt really unconventional. And what I found over and over again when I was plotting this thing out and structuring it was that when I wanted 
to portray something honestly and interestingly, the answer always was with the characters and to put things through the lens of human beings and their relationships. So you can shoot a thing exploding in the very traditional way of, and you're there and it's, you know, VFX and all that stuff. Or I can be telling the story of a young woman who is married and she just figured out that she's pregnant. And then this thing happens that she doesn't even see. She just hears it. And then her husband comes to the window. And we understand right there that this is not a regular night for her. And this is also probably not going to be a regular show because we've deprived you of certain things. And what I found interesting going through is that if I carefully deprive people of certain things, but then allowed them to have it later, it would mean more. Like, how did this happen? No one even asked that question until episode three. And then for you, and I'm sorry for how this might sound, I'm wondering what for you is the climax of the show? And I'm asking that in part because the final episode is actually surprisingly low key. Like yeah. there, there really is not a big argument. There's not a big hero moment. So I always, again, I think of things in terms of character, in terms of relationships. And for me, the climax of the show is the moment that Legasov decides in a courtroom that he's going to tell the truth, the whole truth. And he's going to do so at great personal risk in the hope that his colleague, played by Emily Watson, is correct, that it's going to move these scientists to do the right thing. And it doesn't. So it's a failure. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, in that final episode... Legasov, the character played by Jared Harris, delivers an extremely long and extremely detailed, essentially science lecture yes. about how the explosion actually happened. Correct. What made you want to dedicate that amount of time to something that was, for a lot of people, is going to be very obscure? Okay, so this moment that I'm calling the climax is actually where a lot of storylines all meet and end together. And one of them is the whodunit. How did this happen? There is a mystery there. So he is arriving at this moment where he has decided, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to put myself in danger. I'm going to redeem myself for mistakes I believe I may have made. And in doing so, I will also explain exactly what happened and why. To do that, you need to understand how the nuclear reactor works. And as far as I'm concerned, you don't get the gorgeous irony of why it exploded if you don't understand the details of how that reactor worked because it wasn't what you would think. It was wonderfully counterintuitive. I remember reading it and going, okay, this is kind of mind-blowing. It blew up because it slowed down? That doesn't make sense. Why? And then when you hear why, you go, oh, that's in and of itself a brilliant little story. There's a little short story of what happens inside that reactor that's fascinating. So my job was to give people all the information they needed to appreciate that little short story and that irony without leaving them behind in the dust or confusing them or wasting words. This was not easy, but I worked really hard on it. And I also went for the kind of visual aid to help people who literally were just not interested in the in the words. They could just at least see as he progressed, oh yeah, it's really cold. Uh-oh, it's really hot. And now also in the final episode, there's a wonderful scene between Stellan Skarsgård and Jared Harris. We actually have a clip of it that we can play where these are two men who have had a very volatile relationship. They at times have been more adversarial. They've come to have a sort of a mutual respect and I think a strong working relationship together. And they have what for two Russian men in the 80s is about as emotional of a conversation as you're going to have from them. And here's that clip. Do you remember that morning when I first called you? How unconcerned I was. I don't believe much that comes out of the Kremlin, but when they told me they were putting me in charge of the cleanup, 
They said it wasn't serious. I believed them. You know why? Because they put you in charge. I'm an inconsequential man, Valera. That's all I've ever been. I hoped that one day I would matter, but I didn't. I just stood next to people who did. What was it that you sort of inspired that scene or that you liked about that scene between the two of them? Well, I think that human beings are liars. And when we chart the course of humans in narrative as they develop, oftentimes what we're doing is watching them finally shed their lies. And the lies are there for good reason. They're protective. Stellan Skarsgård's character, Bar Sherbina, comes onto the scene as this somewhat arrogant, self-important Soviet bureaucrat who yells a lot, who's a bit of a bully, and who seems like a full-on party guy. But what is that all there to do? It's there to protect something that's actually very human and understandable, which is a fear that he doesn't matter at all, that he's not important, that he is not particularly well-respected, that he is not smart like a scientist, and that maybe, maybe he's just completely inconsequential as a human being. And what happens over the course of the show is we see over and over that his humanity is there. It is real. And that, in fact, of the things that he wishes he could be, the one thing he hasn't thought about that he already is, is very human. And he is for the people. The talk he gives at the end of episode two to the divers, that's a talk you only give if you have this love of motherland in your veins. And he does in a way that Legasov doesn't. By the time we get to the end there, he is ready to confess that here on death's doorstep, he believes he was a nobody. And ironically enough, it's this guy that was afraid of him and thought that he was a nobody who can say, actually, I discovered that you were the most important one of all. You mattered the most. That to me is the whole point of all of this stuff. Even though those two men never sat on that bench and had that conversation in real life, in the dramatization of these things, we do attach ourselves to humans, and we want to know that something human has happened there. And there's a wonderful photograph of Legasov and Sherbina. I think it's they were in Austria. And the two of them are very close, and Legasov is laughing, and Sherbina is smiling. And you look at it and you think, they're friends. You can't fake this. They became friends through this foxhole relationship in the middle of a war. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back with more from Craig Mazin. This episode is brought to you by Deadwood on HBO. The film was hailed by critics as poignant and masterful, beautifully told, and a brilliant final chapter. Eight Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Television Movie. Visit hbo.com FYC for more on Deadwood. For you, as you were writing, can you talk a little bit about the sort of like the research that you did and how it influenced or didn't influence the writing that you were doing? Well, everything started with research, everything. The idea is to build from a basis of all the things you know that are true and real, and then where you need to deviate in order to effectively tell the story at all, you do so. Rather than to imagine a kind of instinctive fictional version of something and then toss bits of facts on it like glitter, that's not the way to go, if you ask me. So we really did try as best we could to stick to what was real and true, even when the real and true wasn't necessarily the sexiest version of things. But it was also important to me, since we were making a show about the value of truth, 
that I hold myself accountable to everyone in terms of the things I changed. I don't want to be one of those people who gets defensive about it and says, well, it could have happened. You know, No, I think it's actually important not only for people to know what I changed and why, but it's also then really important for them to know what I didn't change, that that is real because that is disturbing to know that some of these things are not glossed by fiction. Men walked around from village to village shooting pets because that was their job. And then we have a first person account and it's tragic. And now in particular, you yourself traveled to the exclusion zone. Yes. And what was that experience like? It was remarkable. It's a very strange thing to go somewhere that you've been to a hundred times in your mind or maybe a thousand times in your mind because you feel like it's returning. You're returning somewhere, but you've never been there before. So Pripyat was beautiful, actually, in its own way. Very sad, very beautiful. But to walk in front of the building that I had been imagining all this time and see it, it was in some ways bigger and in some ways smaller than I would have thought. The really remarkable moment was going inside the reactor building itself, going into Chernobyl nuclear power plant. The size of it is extraordinary. It's bafflingly large. To the point where I started to have a new appreciation for the idea that if someone came to me and said, part of this building just blew up, I would say, no, I I don't think so. This building's too big to fail, you know? So uh, it, it was rather moving. There's a moment where you arrive at the very edge of building three, where it would turn into the section for reactor four, but it's obviously sealed off. And there is a memorial that's been set up for Kremchuk, who was the power plant worker who died there and whose body is still there because it cannot be recovered. It's right where the whole thing collapsed. And it was very, um, I'm not a religious guy, but it's, it was religious-esque for me, I would say. And now I, I've heard you say that you felt like this story simply could not be told as a conventional movie, that the idea of doing this as a five-part series was something you feel it sort of had to be done in this way. Why? Why couldn't you tell this as just sort of a normal movie? Well, when you compress down an incident like Chernobyl to, let's say, two hours or two and a half hours, you necessarily begin to focus on the plot. And in this case, it's an explosion. The movie would become the story of an explosion. And then the characters would be narrowed down to fewer characters, and those characters would be defined by very thin characteristics as opposed to being humans. And you would not have moments like with Jared and Stellan sitting on the bench because that would just be an unnecessary expenditure of time in a closed-end exercise of narrative. For something like this, where the value of Chernobyl is actually how it is not about an explosion, but rather about a mystery and about a system of government and about a culture and about the nature of love, it just would have been rather... uh, unnecessary. It's hard when you're watching the the show to not be thinking the character played by Jesse Buckley, who plays the wife of a firefighter, or the character played by Barry Keehan. He's a sort of a conscriptee to the cleanup effort. I mean, in a conventional movie, I'm assuming those are the kind of characters will be the first thing cut out. Absolutely. There's no room for it. I mean, in this format, I can just say, look, when we get to episode four, I'm introducing new characters. They will kind of cycle through and their story will complete, but it will be in the context of something we understand and you'll know why they were there. And that's powerful. But in a movie situation, what you have is you've got maybe two or three people and they're basically trying to stop the fire while they're investigating what happened. One of them gets thrown into jail. They pull out and there's a big, you know, I accuse you session and a moment. And then he commits suicide. He certainly wouldn't do it at the beginning because you wouldn't do that in a movie. And that's what I kind of... I mean, 
this format is wonderful. As a feature writer, you're terrified on page one that you're already too deep into page count. You know what I mean? Because you're running out of space before you even begin. To have the space necessary is wonderful. Now, I'm still, I'm still a vaudevillian to some extent. So this was initially supposed to be six episodes and I squished it down to five because I looked at two and three and I thought, this section here, this is supposed to feel like you're falling, like you're out of control. And so I think tighter and faster is better here. So I don't need to occupy more space than is necessary. But at least in this format, I get the space that is necessary to tell a story like Chernobyl. But now looking at a show like Chernobyl or, for example, Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, does this feel like a new form of storytelling to you? Like To me, it seems like it's something... It's not a sort of a conventional movies versus TV. It actually is more a question of storytelling. Does this feel like something like we're in, we're inventing some new form here or something really fresh is happening? It may be so. I mean, there's, we know that this is separate and apart from documentary. And typically these kinds of, I guess you'd call them docudramas, historical dramatizations, they were movies. There was kind of an older tradition of doing these things as the the network, you know, miniseries, but the network miniseries was kind of its own weird creature too. I don't think it's a new thing. I think if you look back all the way back to roots, you can see the roots of this sort of the way you can dramatize something episodically and get a larger and broader picture of an event or time in our history. But the fact that our format is so flexible now, I think you are going to see this become the preferred mode as opposed to movies, which I think have been the preferred mode. I really like Dunkirk. I think Dunkirk is wonderful. Now I'm greedy. So I watch Dunkirk and I think, now if Chris Nolan had had eight hours, what would this be? And then one thing I want to be sure to ask you about is the sort of the production design on the show and really the world of the show. It's so convincing. And I'm just wondering, you know, first of all, so many great staircases on this show, how did you find those locations and what's the kind of mix between like practical locations and, and sets? So this was the great, um, preoccupying battle plan of our prep. We knew we had large tasks in all areas, the least of which was dressing, you know, thousands of people over time. And that was in and of itself a little war. But when it came to production design, Luke Hull, our production designer and Johan Rank, our director and I, along with Carolyn Strauss and Jane Featherstone, our other executive producers, we had a lot of meetings. It's amazing how much work and how many meetings go into these things, but all of it translates. I mean, Luke was tireless and he was really inventive. He found this place. I mean, we were in Lithuania primarily because we wanted to be able to shoot at Ignalina, which is a decommissioned nuclear power plant that is essentially a replica. It was a sister plant to Chernobyl. The Soviets weren't big on customization. <laughs> build plant here, build same plant there. So that was one reason we were there. And also Lithuania did afford us still quite a few Soviet-era buildings. Our production office was in a Soviet-era building, which did not have a single right angle in it. It was remarkable. One of the things that Luke did that was remarkable was he found outside of Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, they had started to build a large soundstage. The plan was to encourage film production and ran out of money, ran out of interest. So they had a kind of built building, right? So we were able to take this empty sort of built shell and not only use some of it for actual, some sets that we built, like the the control room, for instance, we built, but we were also able then to convert part of it to our exploded reactor. Because the thing about 
the our needs from a production design point of view was we had to build something that was destroyed and you can't find anything destroyed that you have to build so we wanted to create a, a version of this where we could see our actors actually practically going in and out of this blown open structure we knew that above a certain line that would become visual effects below that we would need for it to be practical and real i believe luke found a building that was empty and convinced the owners of the building to let us knock it down so we could have the rubble. And that was the rubble we used. It was from an unused building that we agreed to demolish. So there are all these interesting things that we did to create this sense of real. When you see uh, firefighters climbing up that rubble, that is what makes it feel real. It's because they're actually there and it is real. In a strange way, they can look up and see something that from one point above is not real. It's visual effects. But the fact that they're standing and moving up that rubble pile makes it real. So these were the things we thought about all the time to make sure that people felt immersed, that we weren't cheating, that we weren't taking the easy way out. And that carried through every step of the way in every aspect of the process. Because one thing I find so remarkable is the way in which you know that it's the 1980s, but it feels like it's the 19. 50s or something like the technology all seems a little wrong and even the clothes and the style like so i'd imagine it's been a real challenge to get the style of things correct well you're right i mean the soviet 80s was a bit like the american 60s which was kind of amazing because you look at all these things and you go oh they're so cool actually like these phones are amazing i mean they're bad but they're amazing it wasn't that hard we were in eastern europe we were in a former soviet socialist republic and we also had teams of people moving through not just Lithuania, but Poland and Ukraine and Russia to gather up these things. And there's a lot of them. So everything that you see is authentic. Um, the phones are authentic and the televisions are authentic and they're from the period. We, everything had to be sourced to the period. And we had the benefit of working with people who were there. They could say, yes, we had this then, but we did not have this then. The clothing is all, all of it procured from a thousand garage sales and rummage sales across Eastern Europe. And then in the case of our specially made clothing, like for our leads, they went and got bolts of cloth for that were, you know, actual, this was a bolt of cloth that was produced in 1982 in Moscow. Great. Now we will make suits based on that following the, so Odile Dix Moreau, who was our costume designer, had a fleet of people who were all doing this and then ordering the one, the areas where we had to replicate were things like military boots. But the good news is there was a military boot. Great. Let's make a thousand of them. And then there was a guy who sat in a room doing nothing but scuffing boots all day. He was awesome. I mean, like everybody was so into doing it right. And in part, I think it was because this was their story. They lived through this. They were in the Soviet Union. They were Soviet citizens. Nobody takes the time to get these things right. And we decided it was incumbent upon us to do that in no small part because that's how you show respect for the culture. And now for you, having created this very successful show uh, that tells this story that most definitely has a sort of a finite ending to it, I don't know if you're being asked to do a Three Mile Island show or a Fukushima show. Like, How do you take maybe what you've learned from doing Chernobyl, from what you have liked about this process, how do you take this forward? Well, the answer is not to do more disaster shows, right? Because again, like I said, Chernobyl for me was never about the explosion. Um, so yes, people definitely keep asking me to do Fukushima. They keep saying, oh, look, more stuff is exploding in Russia. Do more of that. And and Bhopal, which somebody should do, is a great story about the Union Carbide gas explosion in Bhopal, India. 
But for me, all right, I've done a story that centers around a large industrial accident and explosion. What I want to carry forward is not so much the details of what, but the whys and the hows. I want to explore moments in time that are real, that are historically accurate, that cut to something true about ourselves that is bad and that needs to be fixed. And so that's where, you know, the next thing I'm going to be doing that's historical, all I can say is it takes place much closer to home and it's much more recent to now. It is about a system that is failing and it is failing all of us. And we walk around thinking it's not failing. And that's the problem. And that's what I want to expose. The show is Chernobyl. Craig Mazin, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. And for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, and our engineer, Mike Heflin. Listen to The Real on Apple, Stitcher, at latimes.com slash podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You are dealing with something that has never occurred on this planet before. Cut the phone lines. Contain the spread of misinformation.